Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sharp Tech. I'm Andrew Sharp and on the other line, Ben Thompson. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing okay, Andrew. I've been a little tired, stayed up till 3 a.m. watching perhaps the greatest game that I've ever seen in my life, that being the World Cup Final, which capped just an incredible sports week. Then I wake up to to absolute madness. Chaos. Uh, ma- madness in terms of sports <laughs> and also madness in terms of uh, where I enjoy consuming my sports, which is Twitter. So, yeah, doing good. It's It's quite the Monday morning here. So I was curious, how long did it take you to fall asleep after that World Cup final? Because I was like pretty jacked up on the way out of that one. I was rooting for Messi. I just sort of fell in love with Messi over the last couple of weeks. And I just really wanted him to have that ending. And so the roller coaster of emotions over the course of two and a half hours there was a lot to process. And so I could not have imagined going to sleep after something like that. I mentioned three o'clock. Uh, that's because the game ended at two or <laughs> like one forty-five. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, it it took a while. I mean, the trophy presentation took so long that it was a nice little wind down. Uh, so Good, yeah, so yeah. That, that helped. Uh, so I appreciate the organizers for taking forty-five minutes to present the trophy because it helped me <laughs> sort of settle down and then uh, you know get, get at least a couple hours of rest here. Hey, look, it was a nice stage that FIFA set up. It's fine that it took a solid 40 minutes to get all the pieces in place. Um, But you mentioned the chaos that you woke up to. And honestly, it started near the tail end of the World Cup final, around 1230 Eastern, right in the middle of extra time. Everybody on the edge of their seat watching France and Argentina rooting for Messi we got this message from at Twitter By the way, should we be careful? Because I think we insulted France last episode. And now, now we're just coming out as... Uh... <laughs> like, France has Mbappe and has the best language in the world, the best food in no, the they world. They have Mbappe. That's um, enough. Like, they, they don't have, I mean, well, let's be honest. <laughs> Spain has the best food. But uh, if we were talking about... I mean, they have... They can win it again in 40 years. I mean, what an unbelievable performance of Mbappe. And like the... Not to be cliche, but, you know, to have a game where you have two of the best of all time who perform like the best of all time and like neither can mm-hmm. be held responsible for this loss. Like just, I mean, it, it, it's really was like just like a storybook sort of game. It was uh, unbelievable. Sorry, we need to move on. But yeah, it was, it was something else. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I've been sitting here exhaling for like eight hours since that one finished. Uh, but speaking of the end of that one, near the end, Twitter support tweeted the following, quote, We recognize that many of our users are active on social media platforms. However, we will no longer allow free promotion of certain social media platforms on Twitter. Specifically, we will remove accounts created solely for the purpose of promoting other social platforms and content that contains links or usernames for the following platforms. Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon, Truth Social, Tribal, Noster, and post. We still allow cross-posting content from any social media platform, posting links or usernames to social media platforms not listed above are also not in violation of this policy. So Ben, we could start with that policy. And we also got this question from Larry who says, hi, Ben and Andrew, what's your take? Is this new Twitter policy of blocking links to other social media sites a tangible example of how competition is just a click away. The speed of change here is pretty shocking. 
And it seems like Elon just handed Google a tangible example of the argument you guys mentioned on the most recent episode. Um, What's your reaction to Larry's question or the policy in general? Well, I feel like this is a little bit like podcasting about the France-Argentina game at halftime where Argentina is up to zero and looks utterly dominant and a lot of things may change in the next little bit. As we record, uh, Elon Musk has just posted a Twitter poll. Should I step down as head of Twitter, I will abide by the results of this poll. There are 4,357,000 votes as we record. Yes is winning with 57.9% of the vote, 42.1% for no. Uh, the Generally with Twitter polls, once a solid lead is established, that tends to stick. Uh, who knows what will happen with, with this particular poll? So. I would have led with that poll, but I just have no idea how seriously to take any of this from Musk. I mean, I'm long past throwing up my hands with this guy and particularly his Twitter account. So who the hell knows what is going to happen in the in the days to come? Like by the time we get past January 1st, there could be like a dozen different news cycles behind us the next time we talk about Twitter. Right, and that's been a reason to not talk about it every episode because we literally could talk about it every episode, but you run the risk yep. of it being totally different a few days later. And it's one of those things where it's not as black and white as everyone wants to make it. Now, has Elon Musk been an effective steward of Twitter as CEO? I think well, that probably is pretty black and white. I mean, and, and <laughs> the reason why it's black and white is leaving aside setting aside all the cultural war stuff and all that uh there's been a very there's been a dramatic narrowing of twitter's optionality over the last few weeks right so you know you go back and i am alone on the island that i think twitter's network effect is so powerful that they could actually just charge everyone for subscriptions and actually build a business that way and and not be dependent on advertisers to the extent that they are and could actually you know i i think actually think that it's a compelling option for the service that option's now mm-hmm. closed right like like the Twitter's network effect may still be strong enough to keep people on, but it's really hard to see people paying for it, or at least a huge portion of the people that Musk would need to pay for it. And so maybe that was an option when he took over, but with the massive sort of polarization that he's driven, it's it's hard to see that that being to the extent it was viable. And I know some people say it was never viable at all, but to the extent it was, it's much less viable <laughs> than it was before. That's just like a very small example of, when you're in charge of a company that is in a lot of debt, that doesn't have a great business model, that needs to figure out how to make money, you need more optionality, not less. And to to mm-hmm. leaving aside the content of the actions, to take actions that constrict your optionality is just bad management, like just from a very sort of nuts and bolts perspective. And I think that's... You know, there, there's a lot of people that are really eager to sort of fight the culture war, I think, in both directions. And yeah. neither of us, I think, really want to wade into that to a great extent. But you can completely ignore that and acknowledge that this has been a total mess and is not is not conducive to Twitter being a viable entity or one that makes money in the long run. Well, OK, so let me ask you, is this the tech version of Michael Jordan's Republicans buy sneakers too, <laughs> where Elon needs to remember resistance liberals buy subscriptions also and like keep it a big tent. If you're leading what's nominally a $45 billion company, um, I mean, that makes sense to me that as a, as a leader, 
strategically speaking, there have been just so many unforced errors. Right. Well, in the and, last and, month yeah, and, a half. and the advertisers by like you know advertisers might be Republicans or liberals too, right? Like advertisers, mm-hmm. they don't want to be in the middle of a culture war. You know, you talk about brand safety and you you talk about things like being next to threats of violence or, you know, very bad tweets with bad content, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But there's just a general thing like if you are a prominent advertiser on Twitter right now, you're getting lumped in with this very binary sort of determination, right? And you see that we see this in our email. We see this in our feedback. People demanding we talk about this. And the demands are coming from both sides and people are 100, like, <laughs> you have to come down on my side. What, like, why are you not even talking about this? And it's like, this is precisely why I'm not talking about this. I mean, this is, a, there's, there's a lesson that I, I learned <laughs> very painfully many, many years ago. I think it was 2014 or something. Netflix was in this mm-hmm. dispute with ISPs about bandwidth and peering fees and all this sort of stuff. And the general internet take was, of course, Netflix is wrong. All the ISPs were, are, are bad. And I wrote an article saying, look, Netflix's argument is pretty self-serving here because they were trying to frame the debate as being about net neutrality. And I'm like, this isn't about net neutrality. This is a business dispute about, like, bandwidth fees, right? And right. I think I'm pretty consistent. It bugs me when companies reframe what they're actually talking about to try to tap into some sort of broader impulse. And it's like, come on, guys. Like, let, let's be straight here. So that article was fine. You fast forward four or five years, and the uh, – I can't remember. Ajit Pai under Trump, he – repeals the Obama net neutrality rules, which those net neutrality rules was basically saying internet companies have to be treated like the phone carriers. And Mm -hmm. my objection, I agreed with that in principle. And that actually ties into this stuff, right? Because that goes into stuff like you can't discriminate based on content. Uh, My problem is that these, these, they're called Title II, they're so onerous and there's so many things you have to deal with that, I thought it was it was an example of like regulation that's that's way too over the top that that actually would reduce sort of innovation. You're dealing with a sector where the needs, the bandwidth requirements, et cetera, are increasing. It's not like a stable equilibrium; like it's a, it's a dynamic sort of area. Mm-hmm. And so, while I agree with it in principle, I just thought Title II was the wrong way to go about it. And it shouldn't have been, from my perspective, a big deal because the internet had functioned fine without Title II protections for the first you know 25 years. And, you know, Obama had just put these in like three years earlier. Right. And the, and and, yeah. and this is in the context of everyone online was losing their minds, absolutely losing their minds. So told, do you remember this? Do you remember this? The- I do. For anybody who doesn't remember this, it was early in the Trump administration and almost every policy change that was proposed led to like a, a furor on the Internet. And this particular one led to people predicting like the end of the internet and it was a true hysteria for like several weeks in the lead up to this decision i mean it was a precursor of of what well we'll get to that more the precursor of what it was now but so anyhow so in this context i come out i write an article saying ajit pai is right and it was basically the arguments that article were basically the exact same arguments i had made five years earlier in the context of netflix and isps and like just say, look, mm-hmm. look, there's like just and I was about like the business aspects of it, the regulatory aspects, like the things that were actually going on, you know, again. And I was like, I was clear there. Look, I'm in favor of net neutrality as a concept. I think Title II is a really bad way to sort of uh, address it. And I went to bed because, I, you know, I write through the day and I think I might have finished that one late. And I woke up to literally thousands and thousands of Twitter messages, emails. Wow. Death threats, like saying I'm going to come to like no people. I'm going to come to Taiwan, find you and your family. Like it was, 
it was unbelievable. It was insane. And now it was fine. I'm a big boy. Like it, 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 it's it, that. Well, number one, it actually was really hard. It was really, really difficult. Like it, it was sure. like emotionally very distressing. But that's fine. I got over it. But number two, what I realized is there are certain topics that when they cross into that zone where people are going crazy about it and there's yeah. no like it's not even worth it's not worth the time to even write about it because I'm interested in being out here and making arguments and like laying out my case going point by point like our debate about antitrust last week. Right. Like that. And it's great. You can disagree with me and we can have a reasonable argument with it. But there's some topics when they cross the line into the culture war, it's not even worth it to write about because no one is actually interested in logic or arguing about it. Again, even if I'm wrong, I'm fine with you disagreeing with me, but there's a big difference between disagreeing with me and like, I'm going to come kill you because like, I don't even understand this topic, but I just know it's the bad team and, and you know, the X, Y, Z. And I feel like that's happened with Twitter over the last few weeks, right? It's like, (laughs) what can you even say about it when, it, it's become like the current thing to an extreme degree that everyone's on every day going crazy about. Yeah, well, and what's funny is you really just have to read the audience because there are parts of my brain that agree with like the liberal side of the argument. There are parts of my brain that agree with positions that mostly conservatives have adopted. And so if I'm at a cocktail party, it's the the trick is just gauging like what side of the debate someone's on because I agree with a lot of different thoughts on on what's happened. We here. need a sharp report from Washington D.C. cocktail parties. Oh man, one of these days, another vertical, just a D.C. gossip podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the the piece on net neutrality because that was the first time I ever read it. So <laughs> while you fielded a thousand angry emails, I will say no, for my part. Easily. Well, I really appreciated that perspective because it was just such a crazy time where I'm sitting there as a casual user of the Internet and people are sitting there predicting like the end of of days, essentially. And it was so uniform across media that I was like, okay, well, I guess this is a really horrible thing that's happening here. And reading you explain why it wasn't nearly as dramatic as it seemed or was being framed. Uh, was really satisfying and eye-opening. And I actually cited you on a law school exam and got an A (laughs) on that exam. (laughs) So um, I was a a stratechery reader from that day forward. So it could work in mysterious ways. It's actually a really interesting parallel to draw to a lot of this stuff, though, for lots of different reasons. When you talk about Twitter, for example, obviously I started out relatively optimistic about the Musk regime. Um, just Mm -hmm. a lot of that was driven by two things. Number one, uh, I'd been very unimpressed and frustrated with Twitter's management as a company for years and years and years. So like there's some aspect of just someone new sounds like a great thing to me. And then number two, obviously Elon Musk has these two massive successes in, in Tesla and SpaceX and, you know, just to some extent X.com and PayPal was sort of before them. And so, Hey, like, seems like a reasonable bet, right? I do think I wrote this, I think, in a daily update. I think it actually maybe is the best take I've had about the situation, which is there's a big difference between hardware and software. And, and Tesla and SpaceX are hardware companies. And there's a certain, like, inherent constraint that comes from the physical world, right? Like, physics is a constraint on what you can do. One of the great mm-hmm. things about software 
And one of the terrible things about software is there are no constraints. Like, 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 why is it so hard to ship something? Because at some point, if you're a product manager or you're a CEO, you have to say, no, we're shipping on this date because you don't wait until it's done. It's never done. Software is never, ever done. That's why you get crunched. You get down to the last minute and, and like, you're going to ship it no matter what. Because that's the only way to get stuff out the door. And, but that also yeah. means you can do stuff on a whim, right? There's no constraint on your whims. Uh, and I, I feel like, you have someone come in who probably had all sorts of crazy ideas and, you know, want to do all sorts of fanciful things. And then physics comes back and sort of hits you in the face as that's not possible. Can't be done. X, Y, Z. We have to produce these things at scale. And that's a ongoing constraint that's independent of any one person or any someone in management speaking up to you on Musk, right? At the end of the day, physics is sort of an unforgiving mistress, right? Like it's going to stop you from doing things that can't be done. Right. Twitter, you don't have that. You, like we already know, there it doesn't seem like there's any real sort of feedback loop for him as far as people go, and there's no real feedback loop as far as like physical constraints. He can tweet whatever he wants, implement whatever policies he wants, does X, Y, Z, and and I think that's a, a a real core reason why this has not worked out. <laughs> I think is 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 a safe way <laughs> yeah. to say. It. Yeah, well, and it's it's frustrating because coming into it there was room to reimagine what Twitter is, but Musk, like part of his role as leader of Twitter is at least partially marketing. And he has done such a terrible job at messaging basically every change that Twitter has tried to implement over the past two months. He's been deliberately polarizing the way he's promoted the Twitter files. And ultimately, like that presentation makes it easier to just downplay the issues that are raised by the Twitter files, like the the potential downsides of moderation, the shifting free speech norms. Like it's frustrating because anyone who raises those concerns now, which are perfectly reasonable issues to highlight, now gets lumped in with Musk, who's just completely off the reservation and like ruling by Twitter poll. And <laughs> we've all just been sort of watching it happen. And look, I'm sure his critics were going to call him a irresponsible crank, regardless of how he handled himself on Twitter. But, but he's lost that's the norm. Almost he's beside like the point for me. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's just like of the factors that Elon can control, he's been so all over the place. And the only thing that's been consistent is the total incoherence or apparent incoherence of his strategy or vision. And I just wonder when we're going to hit a tipping point where this settles down. Cause I don't, I can't imagine we continue living in this cycle for very much. Well, longer. we'll get to his poll perhaps in a moment, yeah. but, but, but <laughs> I, I think there's a few extra points though, to sort of pull it about this. So I wrote, I wrote a couple of weeks ago narratives, right? I'm like, what? And I said in there, I got, I kind of bought into the narrative of Elon Musk, you know, in these companies, which by the way, are true narratives like Tesla and SpaceX are both triumphs. So you get mm -hmm. frustrated you know, pre-Musk at people dismissing those, right? Like, oh, he gets government subsidies. Well, anyone could have gotten those government subsidies. At the, at the end of the day, what one person got them. And why, right? And yeah. And so there's that. And then you had things like the Friday night meltdown when oh everyone's like or Thursday, I guess it's Thursday right night here. Excuse me, it's it's the Thursday night. No, no, massacre. I, no, no. The Thursday night massacre is what happened this week. I'm talking about the Thursday night meltdown, oh. uh, which was a few <laughs> okay. weeks ago. You need to get you need to get this straight. Where everyone's like saying oh, goodbye man. and like Twitter's gonna like stop operating tomorrow or like overnight and. And, and you're, I'm sitting here, look, I want to be sort of objective observer, and look, I want to criticize Musk and Twitter, but <laughs> this is making it awfully difficult because you guys are 
over here are just losing your minds about something that that's that's not going to happen now now we have all the well actuallys yes twitter could degrade there's probably some signals it has degraded over time that's how large mm-hmm. web web services fail over time and they don't fail overnight but let's not ignore what was going on that evening the statement was no twitter is going down tonight it's going to no longer operate right it, which was which was ridiculous yeah. right and and, and Anyhow, it's just it's hard. It's no, hard to talk and, about. And to put a finer point on it, there were there were emotional goodbyes being delivered throughout that night. This yeah, was it was not- like it's like the plane that's like plummeting, and you tell the person next to you that you love them, and you know, you, you had the chance exactly. to tell you. It was like a funeral, or right? Something. But it's not like the plane uh, no. plummeted like thirty thousand feet and leveled out just over the ocean, right? The plane didn't really mm-hmm. seem to move at all. It was it was just like I don't know. So. But yeah, the Twitter files is a great example. Like, and this goes the other way. I, let's back up. How can you not, just as an American or freedom-loving citizen, be perturbed by, say, the Hunter Biden sort of thing? Or in general, that the FBI or whatever could email Twitter and Twitter is like jumping to like to like ban people, right? I mean, I thought actually one of the mm-hmm. most interesting things that came out was you know, there's people that worked for like telecom companies where, or there was, I think there was in some of the files, like, like where they, they push back, right? Like we celebrate Apple for pushing back against the FBI in, in the case of the, the San Bernardino like shooter, right? That's a guy that shot people. And we celebrate Apple for resisting government pressure of all the times on a principle right, of all yeah. the times when government would seem to have a solid reason <laughs> to sort of get access. And Twitter's over here like, Oh yes, please give us more names to ban. Right. Like of it's it's of course bad and ridiculous, but to your point, the way Musk goes about this and the way he's like blatantly alienating himself with certain voices on uh, on Twitter that are not at all interested in the truth that are clearly purely partisan. Not only does it make it hard for that message to land. To your point, it actually codes the message to be like reactionary or like far right right wing, like. I, and that, that mm-hmm. bothers me as someone who does believe in free speech, who does not want government interfering in the business of who's who's allowed on Twitter or not. Now, I, because I hold those positions, am now coded a certain way, partisan being like, so th- it's it's annoying. <laughs> it's, it's very Are annoying. Are you saying if you were, in, we should say for the record, if you were in charge of Twitter, you would not be ruling by 4 a.m. Twitter poll every night. And <laughs> Musk is in a special I mean, the category. Thing's interesting. Of... Like all these meltdowns are happening like on the weekends, uh, which makes you like, uh, it sounds like Musk is doing his other jobs during the week. And then sometime around Thursday night, <laughs> Good. he like he checks it on Twitter and then uh, everything just, you know, because it, it, it's been pretty consistent. I know this because. Uh, both the case of the Thursday meltdown and the Thursday massacre, uh, John and I recorded dithering in the morning. And between the time when we recorded and the time we posted, there were these like meltdowns. We're like, we're very annoyed. It's like, <laughs> like, why is it always happening in this eight hour period? I think that, uh, God knows what the landscape but, will look but like. But like, 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 go back to the net neutrality bit, right? In retrospect, I actually think I, I was probably wrong about that i i think title two is the wrong way to do this but i am in actually increasingly concerned about moderation slash censorship and I, and this is mm-hmm. one valuable thing that's coming out of this as far as must be in charge number one everyone who was out there saying before musk twitter's a private company they can do what they want like yeah 
here you go. They're a the, private look, company. There's been can, some real whiplash. Yeah, they're a private <laughs> company. They can do what they want. Maybe it would have been useful to have a principled stance about this stuff before now. And it was pretty funny to see folks like not understanding the ban process and like these breathless tweets. You have to delete your tweet before you come back. Like no shit, Sherlock. Like, like, did you like, mm-hmm. and, and so th- th- that's been very funny, but, but then <laughs> I think the issue was the tweets they were deleting were totally inoffensive and not really grounds for banning or suspension would be their argument. Well, why wasn't that the argument for the New York post tweet? Or why wasn't that the argument yes. for like the, the Babylon B tweet that apparently was what spurred <laughs> spurred? Look, there's thing. no argument from me. I the, both sides of this debate have now abruptly switched positions and are making each other's arguments. <laughs> as crazy. long as I'm dunking on people, of course, must commitment to free speech is an absolute joke and reeks of hypocrisy. Right now, the Elon Jet account is complicated. The guy actually did create a computer program to find Musk's private number that actually is not supposed to be public and posted it. So that's a, mm-hmm. that once was the account, a little more complicated. All the reporters posting, talking about the account, obviously not complicated, obviously retributive justice, obviously a joke, obviously not consistent with the First Amendment, and obviously, you know, hypocritical. But it it does kill me to see these folks accusing Elon Musk of hypocrisy well, in the midst of hypocrisy, right? It, it, it's it's it, it, it's all part of the charade here. And look, we're never going to forget the Thursday night massacre. I mean, tell me, throwback tell, to calling Nixon yourself and Archibald. Lab, I mean, peak peak journalism labeling it the Thursday night massacre because like four or five people got their Twitter accounts banned. Just well, amazing. all right. So let me let me anchor this with a specific question. We never answered Larry's well, question. Oh, okay, here's the the link thing. Obviously, bad. But there's a few interesting angles on this. So number one, I've been very, very skeptical of anything replacing Twitter, and that remains the case no matter what. Just because I think what makes Twitter so unique is the fact that everyone's on that, and actually the biggest lure of the platform is not that your friends are there, it's that your enemies are there. The core unit, the core piece of currency on Twitter is the dunk. Like where you quote tweet someone, you make fun of them. Everyone rallies with you. Like that's like that happened to me with the net neutral thing. And it sucks. It's bad. But there's no question. It's a big part of sort of like this partisanship. Like Musk is is I'm sure he's correct. Usage is off the chart. Sure it is. Everyone likes watching a car crash. Yeah. Well, and we should also be clear that that uh, that culture emerged under prior leadership and I think has been really unhealthy and Twitter knew about it and encouraged The quote tweet has been a disaster as far as civility and like a a, a good experience on Twitter goes. Like, and I think anyone that actually cared about that would have rolled it back. The problem is it drives massive engagement, right? And like, and so that- this is a Twitter problem, particularly when you're when you're a public company. It's hard to de-emphasize, right? Like I mean, ima- the numbers um, imagine Musk coming in and being like, "Oh, we want to make this a more wholesome environment, and so we're going to undo the the quote tweet, and I can do that because I have the 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 you know then we get the questions of debt and all that sort of stuff." But yes, to your point, it would be a very difficult thing to undo. So, so that's number one. Number two, uh, <laughs> I definitely did not appreciate the extent to which uh, Musk would both incentivize people to leave. And then also a real sort of Barbara Streisand effect here about like, sorry, which networks I leave to go to? Oh, the one that Twitter won't let me put links on. I mean, like very, <laughs> like who, we're immersed in this. We've heard of Mastodon. Like how many people have a sort of like, you know, even before the last 24 hours. Uh, so not, 
not real skillful sort of strategery uh, in, in that regard. But then number three, there is an aspect where it's just really offensive, I think, to people in tech in particular. And I wouldn't be surprised if this was actually the thing that triggered this poll. Like, I, I, like mm-hmm. just the very concept of banning linking is it's just it's not how the Internet works. I don't I think it it I think Twitter has devalued itself in a short term reach for engagement by like, it's well known that Twitter's if you have a link in a tweet, it's not, it's, it's suppressed in the algorithm. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, they've been doing that with Facebook and Instagram for years. Okay. So, okay. There's more context here. Uh, Let me back up. So go back to when Instagram first started, you know, the hardest thing with starting a social network is how do you find your friends? Like how like getting the actual network. And so Instagram starts mm-hmm. out, it's a photo filter, right? You can take a picture it, and your phones were just total crap back then. I think this was like the 3G or 3GS, some, somewhere around then. And so you take you take a photo, it adds this filter that makes it look somewhat presentable. And then it, you could post it to another network. And so that's how Instagram started. So, it, and there's a very famous essay, I think by Chris Dixon, like, like, Come for the tool, stay for the network. Like the idea that you build something of value that gets people using it first. But the real, where'd that network come from? What you could do is you could link your Twitter account to your Instagram account. Then Instagram would just pull in all your contacts and boom, you now have your Twitter network on Instagram. And that's how Instagram bootstrapped their network. And they basically took the Twitter network and then inserted it into Instagram and then you instantly had hundreds of people or, or more or less or whatever that you followed and that followed you. And so you got over that cold start problem for a network. So very famously Twitter, you know, of course, asleep behind the wheel wakes up and bans this activity. Now this wasn't links in your tweets. You could still put an Instagram link in your tweet. This was an actual backend API connection where you would sign in with your Twitter account via Instagram and it would, you know, Mm -hmm. pull everything in. And a lot of people were upset about that. But at the end of the day, from a business perspective, not only the right decision, but actually something Twitter should have done earlier, right? Now, from a regulatory perspective, this is maybe something that, that, you know, people have talked about should be in allowed. It should be easier to sort of pull your network with you. And actually one of the sort of great ironies of sort of competition and privacy, that intersection is they, they talk about like data portability, but like the GDPR, for example, explicitly excludes taking your portability as far as your network goes. Why? Because it's a privacy Mm -hmm. violation because your, your (laughs) friends didn't give permission for their contacts to be pulled across. So it's a great example of number one, how privacy and competition are sort of fundamentally at odds. And number two, how regulators can just completely and utterly sort of miss the point, right? If we want social network competition, the single best thing we can do is force this, allow you to take your network with you. And, but no, it's privacy. It's like, I mean, the, the, uh, you know, to, 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 Pull Andrew Sharp, you know, your name or whatever it might be. And that's why every, all these apps start, try to get your phone book, right? They they try to upload your contacts and they want to mm. – because you, you want a way to sort of build that network. So anyhow, from a business perspective, though, leaving aside the regulatory point, clearly the right thing for Twitter to do, their main mistake was waiting way too long to do it. And so Instagram comes along. They bootstrap their entire thing onto this network. So this bit about not wanting to help your competitors – and it being a reasonable thing to do from a strategic perspective, long history, just not in tech in general, but with Twitter specifically. Right. So fast forward to now. Uh, 
I just, it's hard well, to and look, it, it is problematic. It it is problematic from a you know regulatory standpoint. What Twitter is proposing to do now seems brazenly anti-competitive, and you know it's also it anti-competitive based on what? One of the crappiest internet business we've ever seen. Well, I mean, I just think the principle of banning links to competitors is going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. It's in, explicitly in violation of some European regulations, and I. I don't know whether it is actually grounds for any sort of FTC enforcement, but I did not think that Twitter would be this aggressive and audacious in, in their approach. And I can't really understand why. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, it, it's it's obviously a bad thing from a competitive standpoint. I'm not clear what regulations it violates. And again, this is an ongoing dispute discussion in tech. Like Twitter already did this a decade ago. Right. And so, again, this is the problem. You get in these moments and this hysteria and you lose all context. Like we've literally gone through this and we we went through it in a moment when what Twitter cut off was actually far more useful and productive than just stupid links. Like they could literally suck in your entire network and connect you to everyone, which, again, Mm -hmm. great for competition. It got Instagram off the ground. Right. And so, you know, (laughs) you fast, you, you fast, you fast forward this bit. And like the idea of banning links on the internet, number one, it's probably short-sighted. And number two, it's deeply offensive, I think, to to a lot of people in tech. Now, again, I'm not saying other stuff's not offensive. It's just like that's getting into like the very like what is the internet, right? The, yeah, the core ideals of what this is supposed to look like. I would just point out this is exactly what Apple bans in the App Store. Like in your own app, you literally cannot link to your own website that sells something in a different oh my way. Gosh. And it's just I just I just think it's worth noting that somehow this is okay. Like we and here we, we got to re-record. Let's put that up front. We're going to re-record the entire episode and put that Apple note up front in the first 30 seconds before we even talk about the World Cup because it's really true. It's such a fevered moment and what Twitter is doing is universally unpopular. And yet it isn't different than what Apple has done over the last however many years as they force all of these companies to submit to their own. Right. It's, it's not like, Twitter. Not, it, it, Twitter is controlling what happens on their app. Apple is dictating what happens in every single app in the world. On any app. Yeah. No, it's really true. And, and it is, it's easy to lose sight of it as Musk becomes public enemy number one. Well, this and, is what um, and this is what I mean about why it's so difficult to even talk about. Like, like, like. I mean, I do feel somewhat conflicted talking about this because I I do feel Twitter, again, as someone that loves Twitter, depends on Twitter, built my built my business on Twitter, spends more time on Twitter than basically any anything else by far. Like when I look at my you know mm-hmm. my usage <laughs> report, it's very embarrassing. <laughs> I don't ever want to know how much what what percentage of my day <laughs> when I get chided by my son. Are you are you on Twitter right now? I feel I feel bad, yep. like a bad parent. And you should, yeah. I'm not sure this is a good thing for society. I'm not sure if we're meant to be in this super low friction environment where everyone's stuck in the same place. And this was my critique of Musk at the very beginning. He comes out with that message, being like, "You know, I want to make the digital town square." I'm like. Is that a good thing? Are we sure? Like, and so mm. all this, it's like, is he driving Twitter into the ground? Uh, sure seems like it. Um, <laughs> I do kind of want, like, well, maybe that's not, not actually well, the worst thing in the world. And when you say, is that a good thing? You're re- referring to the idea of 
any digital town square where everyone is connected at all times, right? Yeah, it, I mean, Twitter is so unique because it's so low friction and everyone is in the same place, right? I mean, Facebook, everyone, you know, when the media complains about Facebook, I think one of my, you know, jokes slash observations because they don't use it. And so it's very easy to complain mm-hmm. and point to the platform you don't use and ignore the one that you do. But Facebook, like you post and it's shown to your friends. And yes, you can do public posts, and by the way, Facebook got busted by the FTC for trying to change everyone's posts from being just their network to being public posts by default without sort of like getting user permission. But that's uh, – I just – I mean, I, this is like – I'm a little more hesitant to talk about it because this is more just like personal belief and like sociology and sort of stuff. I, like the – we we lived for you know millions of years where all of the things that mattered to us, the things that impacted us were very local, were, were, were the things that were around us. And this started to change with the advent of mass media and TV, and suddenly we're much more aware of what was happening elsewhere in the world. But Twitter makes this, takes this to the extreme, and it's just constant. And you're immersed in, in all these sorts of things. And I think about this Twitter stuff, right? It's like, it's so tempting to just to marinate in it, to just be, and you're, and you're mm-hmm. agitated and you're worked up and you're mad and you're, you're uh, frustrated with this side and that side. And they're such hypocrites. And no, no, we're not hypocrites. We have the, we, no, you have to understand X, Y, Z. And <laughs> no, that's not doxing. This is doxing. It's like, and then you step back. It's like, what actual impact does this have on my life? Why is my mood, my happiness, my focus being dictated by this stuff that doesn't matter? Like uh, one mm-hmm. of the things with all those Elon podcasts is they're all immediately obsolete because it's literally changing the next day. And like, imagine Elon Musk resigns tomorrow and someone else is in charge. Would it have been worth it to like lose your head for for a, a few? I don't know. And again, this might be my own personal biases saying, and I'm not going to make this judgment for anyone else, any of my listeners. There's a lot of people that get really mad when I talk about anything on the internet potentially being bad. Uh, but I, I like I I don't think anything's black or white. I don't think the internet is inherently everything is all default good. And again, from a personal perspective, Twitter's been a massive, massive positive in my life. I've benefited arguably more than anyone on earth from Twitter. Like I I grew strategically mm. basically for free on the back of people who found my site tweeting about it. Like it's it, it's 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 been incredible. And so I I say this with. You know, so one, the linking stuff does bother me because like that's good for my business and it, it, I feel bad for well, new people. Yeah, I but... was going to say, also though, you're credible here because look, it's it's helped you individually and if you still have concerns about its impact on society, I think that's a sign of how sincere it is. Does anyone feel good about our, 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 our discourse over the last you know decade since Twitter came to prominence? Right. And what I would say is that we live in a time of near constant acrimony after after the last 10 years or so. And but how much but is it is Twitter downstream or upstream of that? Um, you're right that we're getting into now like sharp sociology. <laughs> uh, but I, I would say that Twitter has an agenda setting function and has driven a lot of polarization on both sides that then leads to conflict oftentimes on Twitter. And then also it leads to more conformity at the same time as right, we're that's dealing a problem. with unprecedented acrimony. No, those, so are, just, those are interconnected. The conflict drives conformity because you get this like yeah. my tribe sort of instinct, like we're under attack. And yeah, I'm going to, I'm not going to disagree with you about X, Y, Z because at the end of the day, they're worse. 
Like, like, look at them. And right. we, you see them every day. This whole, like, one of the greatest, and I, I wrote about this. I was totally wrong. This whole idea of filter bubbles, like, the problem with Twitter is it's not a filter bubble at all. You're exposed. Like, there were always cranks in the world. There were always people you completely disagreed with. There's that famous anecdote. Like, I don't know anyone who voted for Nixon, right? Like, the, this has been a reality, but it's a lot different when it's suddenly exposed to you on election night, it's like, wow, that was interesting versus you're marinating, immersed in it, dunking on it every single minute of every single day. Yeah, well, and your post on net neutrality is probably a great example. I don't know the specifics, but I imagine that you would not have woken up to thousands of emails, like calling you all sorts of names and threatening to fly to Taiwan if you hadn't posted it to Twitter. If it had just been sent to your subscription list, I don't know if that's true. Can you? Well, confirm? yeah. Well, I mean, because the the benefit from Twitter is that my users can tweet about what I wrote, and so that like the the, the real the real benefit from Twitter for authors is not that it gives you a megaphone. The whole point of your having your own site is you have your own megaphone. It gives your all your readers a right. megaphone. And but when in your readers that are really instance, mad at you, they can use it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That that could be what happened. Um, no, it should have should have been a paid post. It should not have been a public post. Like there's lots of lessons I learned from that for sure. Yeah. And you know, it's just interesting because oftentimes it's not worth it to, deviate from consensus on Twitter. And so the conversation right. on Twitter becomes fevered and increasingly radical uh, it, in any number of ways, because being the moderate who says this really isn't the end of the internet is not what people want to hear on Twitter. It doesn't do well on Twitter and it will get you shouted down on Twitter. And like, that's a problem. I, I think arguably we're seeing what happens with Elon Musk himself, right? Like, I think Elon Musk, I don't know, who knows with Elon Musk, to be honest, but you can imagine Elon Musk being some sort of like normie centrist, right? And he loves to go out and say, I always vote for Democrats. It's like, who knows what he did? But you can imagine him being under this sort of attack. Well, who's going to jump to his defense? And then, and then the side that jumps to your defense, like, wow, you guys are good guys. You're defending me. And then that side that jumps to your fence, they start imposing their ideological conformity on you. And I, you see this happen with both sides. Like, we're human. Like, being under attack like that is hard. Again, I'm not asking for any sympathy. But just having gone through it, it's very difficult. It's very painful. You feel completely isolated. You're just – you're reaching out, searching for allies and support anywhere you can get it. And, mm -hmm. and then if you get it somewhere – and then the people that give you the support are then very vocal and extreme about imposing their views on everything onto you. And you're like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, you were right about this one thing because I know that because it impacted me. Maybe you're right about these other things. And none of this is a conscious process. It's all subconscious. Like people want to fit in. They want to have a tribe. And if your tribe says believe X, Y, Z, you're going to believe X, Y, Z. And Twitter is this tribal enforcement mechanism that operates at unbelievable scale and unbelievable speed in a way that humans have never, ever had to deal with in the history of humanity. And this idea that we're evolutionary equipped to handle this to me seems <laughs> farcical. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's more plausible that nobody could fix Twitter. And well, the other thing is a lot of us said, Oh, having someone who uses Twitter run Twitter is great. Actually. No, that, I think that was a very, that was a very <laughs> bad take. Honestly, Musk is up there with the worst Twitter users on the planet. As far as the way he chooses to use that product. Um, 
And I said this at the very beginning, we were in beta. This was never released. But when Musk announced that he was purchasing Twitter, I said to you, like, I don't really know this guy very well, but people seem to loathe him. And if his ownership makes Twitter so toxic that it prompts news organizations and media to reevaluate their relationship to Twitter and a bunch of people stop using it, that's probably a net positive for society. It's probably a net positive for the general credibility of the media. And it's probably the only realistic path to moving past this era of like constant acrimony and, you know, polarization. So I, I, I am hopeful in a way <laughs> that this is all leading to a good place as people just sort of abandon Twitter. Uh, but we'll see. I, I don't anticipate that that many people are actually going to leave. That's actually my final question for you. Well, well, well I, I want to double that, that news to be a point. I think is actually really important. I think two things happen because, you know, there's people like, oh, the media is always liberal, blah, blah, blah. I, I think that's that's missing. The Twitter both has a, a, a revealing aspect, right? Like it, it, it's it's very hard to fake it on Twitter, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you're going to get revealed for sort of what you are. But it has this conformity enforcing aspect. And the most extreme and loudest voices are going to drive they're, they're the totems around which that conformity forms. And so you, again, this, I'm not trying to be a both sides person. Cause I think, I think it's just pretty honest. You see it on both sides where you have this drive to extremes and this enforcement mechanism. And I do think it's been a disaster for the media because I mean, let's be honest. The media is by and large white collar professionals, usually pretty well off uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, well-educated they're going to tend left. Just you sort can of, say liberal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it's one thing to be like you, you it's your newsroom and you're fighting with people about what you do in xyz it's a different thing when it's it's like you're you're in there battling the whole internet so you have this combo of revealing what you believe but what you believe is also changing and it's changing in an extreme direction and then you have the other side that is again on twitter looking to pounce on everything and highlight xyz i mean i think it's very funny when, when like there it's probably got a little bit but there's a, a period where it pours on twitter They'd be like, look, no, Twitter is just my personal account. The, the, read this news article that is neutral and objective. It's like, I just saw you tweeting, right? Well, like, and, I'm and not going to divorce this, right? But again, it's easy to pick on the media here. Like, as someone who on this podcast and other places, I've tried to be pretty consistently pro-free speech as a principle and point mm-hmm. to things like China. I end up where the people that like those articles and support these things tend to be on the other side. And you get the exact same sort of pressure that goes in the opposite way. Like, like at the end of the, like what's revealing about this? Two things. Sorry, I'm really going off on this, but I've I haven't talked about no, Twitter no, much. It's, so I have two it's things. Fine. Number one, I think all of this is a great object lesson on why principles are hard and also why principles matter. It's almost impossible to maintain in the face of things you vehemently disagree with to hold on to some sort of principles. And and one of the one of the what we've lost, you know, I, I've talked about this. We've lost this idea that that the First Amendment was a get out of jail free card for tech executives, right? Mm-hmm. And I understand why people didn't like that and and, and had issues with it as far as a, a abuse online things like that go. But what we've lost is any sort of anchor about any of this stuff, right? Like, like and, and that was actually a very useful thing to have. Number one, number two, this is a beautiful object lesson 
And the problem with imposing things that you think are good that entail your people being in charge, your tribe being in charge, what happens when the other side is in charge? We're witnessing both of those problems, principles, abandoning them in the cost of that right now. Yeah, well, and the only other note that I want to add is when we talk about the credibility of the media relative to their use of Twitter, I think journalism is incredibly important. And if you think journalism is important, then maintaining at least the appearance of objectivity is like a paramount aspect. Well, it's of more than appearance, though. I, I do think the media was more objective previously. I think, again, well, the incentives were were different right, previously. The yeah, because the incentives you have now is the approval of your peer group, right? And if the approval of your peer group is driven by Twitter and this conform, conformity process. And by the way, those are professional incentives because you advance within the media by impressing other people who are on Twitter. And so it it doesn't necessarily matter what a group of 50,000 readers thinks, but it does matter what a group of 500 peers in media think. And maybe that's always been true, but I think Twitter has exacerbated the problem. And the more freely you're just tweeting whatever comes to mind on any given issue, the more risk there is of eroding credibility. And I think collectively, a lot of credibility has eroded over the last 10 years or so. And Maybe it's not permanent. It could be a situation where you're never putting the toothpaste back in that tube. But um, I like to have hope that eventually we'll get to a saner place collectively. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think the toothpaste went back in the tube. But I think the hope is that you have to have an internet solution. In this case, the internet solution is there's way more outlets. There's way more writers. Like I think the rise of sort of in, independent writers is a great thing. Obviously, I'm exceptionally biased in that regard. But Mm -hmm. this world, because this is all tied to business model, you had a hundred year run where newspapers were by and large funded by advertisers and advertisers, as Elon Musk is discovering, like to play it down the middle. They don't really want to upset either side. Now, does this, as critics would say, favor those in power, favor the status quo, favor those that already have advantages? Absolutely, it does. That's intrinsic to it. And I think it's right to point to this was a flaw in the previous model, but you can also say, look, there was real advantages to it. There was incentives that pushed against polarization that pushed mm-hmm. towards sort of even handedness. And I think because the problem isn't just that Twitter happened. It's also that the, the incent- these incentives all have all gone away, right? The, the advertising model isn't a sustainable one. And so unfortunately, or fortunately, I think just reality, the, the best thing we can get to in the future is lots of voices, Lots of points of views. And does that make it hard to navigate for the normal person and figure out what's true, what's not? It does. But that's just – that's why I've written a lot of these articles about, like, information and, like, understanding yeah. how to read critically because, that, like, that's that's the only way forward. Like, on the internet, we have to empower and enable individuals how to think critically, how to figure this stuff out. And a good way to start is probably getting them off Twitter. Well, totally. (laughs) And, and, you know, it's such a noble profession. And so it's not unreasonable to say that if you're practicing that profession, there are going to be times when it's wise to exercise restraint. And this has been difficult to practice during the Twitter era. Yeah. Um, That's why abandoning things like uncompromising commitment to free speech is such a loss. Because, like, again, you can acknowledge the issues around moderation and abuse, but you have to have an anchor. Mm -hmm. 
this isn't a slippery slope argument per se. It's just the reality of if you're unmoored, the powers around you, the winds, the sea, the waves are stronger than anyone is. And I put myself in this category. There's a reason I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter because it's important for me to try to retain my own point of view, to try to retain consistency. And I am just as worried about as anyone about the conformity machine. Yeah, well, it's also just not productive to spend Sorry, I do day. spend time on Twitter, but uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> you don't tweet. You don't, you almost yeah. never tweet except from your alt account where you tweet constantly about basketball. Right, but, but, but think about that. What do I enjoy about my alt account? I, I am on that account. I'm a blatant Bucks fan. I troll the Boston Celtics <laughs> yeah. as often as I can, right? And I'm leaning into and embracing the fanatic experience where am I objective about the Bucks? Of course I'm not. Am I being sort of a, a jerk to sell this? Okay. Of course I am. But like you that's do kind of claim to be objective about the Bucks, though, well, which but you, is and you particularly a, tiresome. No, no, <laughs> I'm not objective on Twitter, but in our private conversations, you have to admit <laughs> I'm pretty objective. Okay, you can be objective. Has there been a single post that has made you want to go try Mastodon or post as people like screenshot their tweets or whatever i i guess they're toots on mastodon um has there been any sort of promo that has made you curious about what these other platforms look like no not really and that's just because i've been fortunate enough to develop really strong communities like we talked about the group chat sort of thing and mm -hmm. i'm in multiple group chats and i do feel it's important and valuable that I'm in a few different group chats that are sort of all over the place, like Norby group chats, more sort of like, you know, libertarian group chats, more liberal group chats, more progressive group chats. Like, I think just getting immersed in talking to different people, it it does, like, it's kind of like the internet solution I was talking about, like trying to stay exposed and aware of the different waves that are going on, I think is really good and important. And I think community is important. I think the reason why I love group chats so much is I think it's the best of the internet. It's 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 actually enabling constant sort of, friendship and fellowship to use like an old an old church term yeah without the a lot of the dangers and problems that are inherent to the internet again not just as far as being dunked on and abused but being sub being walked into conformity like you find a good group of folks that will call your bs and like go back and forth that's that's great and that's amazing uh i think mastodon as a concept is great this idea of being federated and own your own server, run your own moderation. That's perfect. That's how things should do. My skepticism is, number one, it's just there's inherent weaknesses in that as far as user experience, onboarding, things like that. There's mm -hmm. real privacy concerns, which I you should just be aware of. I don't think that should stop you. But whoever runs that server sees everything, right? Like, don't you shouldn't be doing a lot of direct messaging on Mastodon, for example, right? That you should okay. go you know, do something else. Uh, and then, you know, sort of number, number three is, I can't remember number three is, but I like this idea <laughs> of there being more dispersed. I mean, I wrote this post several years ago, social networking 2.0, like saying this is where we're going. Generally, Facebook and Twitter are devolving into number one battlefields and number two, like references or pointers to another community that's in a different place. And I think it, that's all healthy. So I would love Mastodon to be a massive success. Yeah. Well, um, it has no appeal to me, and most of what I've seen of Mastodon indicates that some of the most annoying people on Twitter have just sort of transported all of their stuff to Mastodon. Uh, 
I don't need to be a part of it. Um, my enemies are all still on Twitter. These are people <laughs> that I'm indifferent to <laughs> that I find uh, mildly annoying, but alas. Um, all right. Well, I texted you Sunday morning and said, I don't think we need to talk about Musk. And then all this other stuff happened with Musk and Twitter. So we are now nearing an hour. In. In. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't want to stuff to get on my chest, to be honest. It- well, that that was the challenge is like, all right, so do you talk about this and make it a 10 hour podcast or because you can't really confine any of it to five to 10 minutes because there's so many different layers. What's happened with Twitter and what might happen with Twitter Um it's a wild story that, as we said earlier, changes every 12 hours. I mean, let's see what this poll turns into for old Elon. Um, time will tell. Let's get to this observation from, from Liberty, and then we'll just do an extra long episode on the next one. <laughs> because after all, you're going to have two weeks to listen to it over Christmas. So don't forget, exactly. buy gifts. Buy, buy, this, buy the gift of Sharp Tech in your show notes. Oh, yes. Please do. And um, Liberty says, Liberty RPF on Twitter, uh, frequent emailer as well. He says, I'm sure you guys have gotten feedback on this. But Nestle is a Swiss company. So that's a correction to Ben's Nestle shout out on the last episode. I, I thought that right after we finished and I, I, I was, I mean, number one, I was, of course, I hate, you know, it's annoying to be wrong. So that was bad. It was also funny that it took us a while to think of one. And then we thought of one that wasn't even French. Uh, oops. Well, I mean, look, Revlon was also a miss on my part. Uh, <laughs> Vidal Sassoon. I, the, the French should feel good, though, that my associations with France are clearly beauty related. So it's like a Seems luxury society yeah. Yeah, where everyone's good looking. And again, I, I do think they have the best language and the best food. I don't know where you're coming from with the Spain argument there. I mean, the French food is just undefeated. Yes. Um, Spanish food is top on the continent. Okay, well, my paella is fine. Nothing no, crazy. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like saying I like Mexican food. Like, yeah, Taco Bell is fine. I mean, that, 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 sorry, that's bad. That's mean to paella. But there's a lot more to Spanish food than paella. Anyhow, okay, you know. all right. Um, well, we also got other shout outs. L'Oreal has a seriously innovative track record hiding behind those cosmetics. That was Matt the one says, I thought that's when I realized that Nestle is a, is a Swiss company. Uh, I was thinking of Wario. That, that, that's because that actually have read up a bit about them in the past. Um, I think that is actually one of the best answers. I think L'Oreal and LVMH are are the are the two best answers. Okay, yes, LVMH is is what I was thinking about, and then Airbus Schlumberger. I mean, Airbus is. I mean, it's a French company. We don't necessarily well, have to it's celebrate. A, it's a, yeah, I mean, it's a European company that is you know basically set up you know, very downstream from the, the, the EU and, you know, mm-hmm. to be a Boeing competitor. I mean, it's a good example of, I think, where governments can make a real impact in terms of industries that have, you know, these sort of structures that are hard to get off the ground. So it is innovative. It's innovative in a very European way. In that <laughs> the involvement of government is, I think, very prominent. But yes, it, it, there's certainly, uh, you know, cleaning Boeing's you know, Boeing's cleaning their plate. I don't know what are they doing. Cleaning so. their clock. I cleaning think their clock. The That's what I was looking for. Yes. <laughs> um, well, uh, Michelin, Renault, Carrefour, and AXA. A X A. Yeah, uh, I, I think we're because we both like Formula One. We're not quick to think of Renault, but um. Well, I was gonna say Renault. Uh, 
not the greatest team in the world and they were so incompetent they had to rebrand in recent years <laughs> to alpine um, and they have a lot of funding so it's actually pretty difficult to understand why they continue to underperform so hopefully the rest of the french corporate sector is more successful than alpine slash renault not a lot of tech companies on this list not a lot of that's true that's that's how the conversation began um it's been a tough week for the french though i mean our <laughs> our slights and the world cup loss um i hope you could all uh enjoy some time off at the riviera and um 35 hour work weeks a lot a lot to, to to love about the french uh in any event as i ramble toward the end here we do have a bunch of good questions for later in the week yeah and- you promised remote work so no let's do this let's do let's do a uh uh we'll figure it out but we we owe a follow-up on the uh remote work stuff we have some follow-up on tsmc and we we need the fun christmas mailbag people were very disappointing with the thanksgiving mailbag i had to self-generate the group chat taxonomy <laughs> <know>. question <laughs> don't ask for too many though we've got good questions oh do already. we have good questions this time? we've okay, got I- a we've got a, a worst acquisitions of all time rushmore um Ooh. as a <laughs> as a compliment to, I'm, I'm to our to prep, best acquisitions I'm to prep for that one yeah yeah so we'll see um ben will prep we will be back later in the week and everybody you can a email us email at sharptech.fm and B, you can give the gift of Stratechery by going to stratechery.com where No, uh, go, go go to the link in your show notes. That's oh, exactly what that's you gotta right. do. All right. It's all about the show notes. Not just that's right. I mean, honestly, honestly, that's like a, a key piece of passport is hmm. leveraging show notes because we know who you are, right? Well, we don't know who you are specifically, but you're getting this individual feed. And that's why you can go to show notes, you can click dithering, and boom, it's in your podcast player. You didn't have to log in, you didn't have to like go to the directory. Boom! You can add sharp China. Boom, uh, you can add Stratechery, and uh, and so yeah, you, you like you know you need some. Uh, you, I know you're on you're on the content side. You're not worried about the, the tech side. <laughs> no, Andrew, no, no. I'm, I'm real, populating real, the show notes. Some real innovation links. there. I feel like French. I feel French. I feel French right now, and uh, you know, disrespected, slighted. <laughs> yeah, yes. So. Well, I'll have to hashtag be better and uh, we'll come back later in the week and check out the show notes. I'm putting links to stories in there every week. Lots of good follow up reading for anybody who's interested. So Sharp Tech is all about the show notes for a variety of different reasons. Um, And let's keep it rolling later in the week, Ben. All right. Talk to you later. Talk to you later.